Hi boys and girls, welcome back to Coast Access Radio Storytime. Today we're reading about The Bee Mystery and the Strange Land, The Ghost House by Bill Nagelkirk. Maybe we'll also find out more about that old house and the weird Agnes. Chapter 17 David has spent many hours streaming programs on his tablet. During his illness, he got hooked on documentaries about ancient cultures and civilizations, dazzled by all the colours of the past. Admittedly, not the coolest hobby, but who cares? The red brick path through what was once the villa's back garden is like a ghost of its former self. The garden that used to be Agnes's reminds David of one of those ancient sites that can only be truly appreciated from above during days of drought when the grass is withered and the bones of what lies beneath are revealed for a short time. He goes on to imagine a 3D virtual restoration of the red zone, bringing the whole area back to life. Perhaps someone's already done that. He must remember to check. If they have, then he'll be able to see for himself what it looked like before it turned into what it is today. He passes by the outdoor toilet that Agnes mentioned the long drop where ladies out for a summer's picnic had to line up long ago while the men, presumably, peed up against the trees. No one would think about using it now. One side is fully open to the air, while the other three corrugated iron walls sag and buckle under the strain of years and earthquakes. David's not sure why it's still there. He doesn't even try to work out why Agnes implied it was in working order. Somehow... He doesn't want to know. There's another mystery that's only now occurred to him. When exactly were all those picnics, the ones where Agnes and her mother slaved over scone baking? When was it that Agnes's house was, as she put it, a sun at the centre of its universe? The questions keep bugging him. How old is Agnes, actually? Battered and bruised after battling through the tree gap, too late, he realises he should have used a somewhat easier opening he came through originally and worked his way round. David fixes his gaze on the cabbage tree whose fronds lightly clatter and clap as if to cheer him on, then looks out for the tall weeping willow, simultaneously taking care to watch his step on the uneven ground. He picks his way through the thick grass, skips around shrubs and trees, avoids a beady-eyed magpie, kicks the occasional piece of brick and broken concrete, trips over a single gumboot, and then a thin tube of old irrigation pipe. The gumboot looks just like his mum's, the pipe like the one she put in their garden ready for summer watering. It's so weird to think that people no different from his mum and dad and him and Amber had once lived right here, and that some of the stuff they'd used was still here, Small reminders of the way things used to be, but somehow different and richly strange. Before David reaches the river, he sees movement out of the corner of one eye. When he turns his head to look properly, it's gone. Immediately he thinks of Agnes's lanyard people, and his heart beats a little faster. What if it's them? What if they've seen him? It's ridiculous, David knows but he can't help imagining men in suits and hard hats lying in ambush. Two can play that game, he decides. 
ducking behind some low shrubbery, he manoeuvres his way to the spot where he thinks he saw whatever, whoever it was. Just then, the hum of bees, which he hasn't noticed so much since Agnes told him the lanyard people were coming, returns in full force. It's as if a wave of buzzing swishes towards him. It feels so palpable, like a hot nor'westerly wind, that David recoils, terrified of being stung to bits, even if, so far, it's only the sound and fury of the bees that have haunted him, not the bees themselves. Nervous but intrigued, he tentatively finds himself following their sound. The ground rises and falls a little, uplifts and depressions caused by the movements of the earth. As he tops one low rise, David is both surprised and not surprised to see a cluster of beehives in a hollow, screened by greenery in much the same way that Agnes's house is hidden from sight by the ring of trees and flowering shrubs. At the same time as he sees the hives, David is also seen. Two people, unrecognisable in protective gear, lanyards round their necks, ID tags fastened to those lanyards. Chapter 18 Lanyard people Whoa, come no closer, my friend. There are quite a few bees returning home at the moment. Raising his protective veil, a man steps up the slope. David sees he's wearing a mask even underneath his beekeeping gear. David puts his own mask on for the first time that day. At the same time, he dodges a bee that comes way too close. He's not sure what to be most worried about, bees or the official-looking lanyards. You're beekeepers, aren't you? he says. Even though that seems obvious enough, it pays to be sure. And if they are, they can't really be Agnes's lanyard people, can they? The uniform gives us away, I'm afraid, the man says. I'm just the apprentice. A woman's voice calls out from the hollow below. Uni student for most of the year, trainee beekeeper during the holidays. I saw those, David says, pointing to the lanyards and ID cards, and I thought, what did you think? I thought you might tell me I wasn't allowed to be here, David says. Well, we do try to keep the hives out of the public view, the man says. But walkers in the red zone often stumble across them. That's cool, though. People who walk in the zone don't usually try to interfere with them. They know why the hives are here. There's so much for the bees to forage on in the red zone, and less danger. There, they're so loud, says David. Are they? They don't sound particularly loud to me. Perhaps I'm just used to them. I heard them from inside the house, way back over there, says David, pointing to where Agnes's house lies, and from even further away. Wouldn't really have thought that was possible, but I guess it all depends on which way the wind's blowing. It wasn't just me who heard them. Agnes did too. Agnes? Who's she? David bites his lip. He's already told Amber not to say anything to their parents about her, and Agnes isn't likely to appreciate interference of any kind by anyone, and that's pretty much the message he's got from her. But now he's gone and accidentally blabbed to a complete stranger, two complete strangers if the woman is also listening. 
the old lady who lives there. The man looked mystified. I know the place, he says. I went and had a look through it once, not that long ago. Bumped into some folk from the city council. Apparently they were trying to work out what to do with it. The city council, says David. Agnes's lanyard people. Has to be them. You've lost me now, says the beekeeper. David hadn't realised he'd been thinking aloud. It's nothing, he says, starting to wish he'd never followed the sound of the bees. The beekeeper shrugs. Anyhow, the actual owner lives in Aussie, they told me. He wants it preserved, apparently, even though he's not in a position to restore it himself. Got on him for trying, I say. Too many old buildings have gone since the quakes. The council wants to preserve it too, but that sort of thing costs money, doesn't it? Probably quite a bit of dosh. So they're in a dithering, what-shall-we-do sort of mode. It's my guess that everyone's hoping someone else will come along and buy the old house, do it up, sort the problem out. Shall I get the bee smoker ready? The woman calls up to the beekeeper. We were just about to open up the hives to check how they're doing inside, the man explains. I'd better go then, David says, starting to edge away. It's OK. Hang on a sec. Mandy, the beekeeper calls to the woman. I'll just finish telling... Sorry, what's your name? David. Hi, David, I'm Ed. I'll just finish telling David about the old house. The woman sighs audibly. Ed takes no notice. The thing is, no one lives here anymore, says Ed. There was a guy called Stephen, who used it as his squat, apparently. But certainly not an old lady. The house is as empty as the inside of a drum. David hears Ed's word, but their meaning doesn't register, not straight away. From the direction he's come from, David picks up the sound of the cabbage tree again. This time their friendly clapping comes across as more jeer than cheer. David has heard of head spinning, and he knows what it's like to feel light-headed, having experienced that feeling many times during the past year and more, but this time the spinning seems so much worse. No one lives here anymore. But she told me she lives there, he says, as much to himself as to the beekeeper. He wants so badly to be believed that the urgency in his voice surprises even him. Agnes, I mean. And she must do. Otherwise, how would she know about the council people who came around? The lanyard people, she calls them. Ed looks down at his own lanyard. Ah, I get it, he says. You thought we might have been them. I wondered. She heard them talking about whether her house should be kept or bulldozed. She said that a squatter named Stephen is still sleeping rough there. I've seen his sacks and camping stove and what was left of some of the food he ate. Tiny little potatoes from Magnus's garden. Hey, 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 slow down, mate. David takes a breath, tries to calm himself. The bit about Stephen's definitely not true, Ed says. At least, not any more. She told me it's her house. Well, I don't know who this Agnes is, or where she's come from, or why she's told you all these things, but she has to be having you on. 
The crew from the council told me that Stephen was squatting in the house around the time when he first arrived on the scene, scouting for the best places to put down the hives. He had been moved on from his regular doorway in town next to the library. He let them call social services on his behalf to see if they could get him somewhere more fitting to live. They found him a place in a boarding house. Better than the old villa, I'd say. Down in the hollow, Mandy has started pacing up and down. Better get back to my bees, says Ed. I forgot Mandy wants to get away early. She has a party to go to tonight. If it makes you feel any better, I'm happy to call in on this Agnes when I'm finished here. Try and find out if she's in a similar situation to Stephen's. Who knows? He might have put her onto the place to begin with. Maybe she'd be happy for social services to get involved in her case as well. That's the last thing Agnes will want, David thinks, but doesn't say. It's probably worth a try, though. He nods. Thanks, he says. No worries. Where are you off to now? The river, says David. Lots to see there today, Ed says, as he puts his protective veil back on before returning to the hives. Cheers for now. David turns round once. Puffs of smoke rise from the hollow. After that, he can no longer hear the humming of the bees, and he doesn't even realise that he's still wearing his mask. Chapter 19 The inside of David's head contains its own hive of bees. They swarm and hum, darting here, there and everywhere, little orange and black missiles of thought, anxiety, worry and doubt, all sounding off together. He knows with absolute certainty he shouldn't have told Ed about Agnes. It's not any of his business, nor David, when it comes down to it, who lives in the old house. On the other hand, if he hadn't said, then he would never have discovered the truth about Agnes. Why did she make all the silly claims she did, pretending the house is hers and that she's always lived there? She's been so convincing that David has followed every word. He feels tricked, betrayed by Agnes. Only when he reaches the river do his jumbled, anxious thoughts begin to calm. At that point he feels how damp his face has become and registers the mask. He tucks it impatiently down under his chin. Somehow the sight of the river's flow starts to soothe him. What did Ed mean when he said there was lots to see today? He crosses a broken road, empty except for an SUV parked a little way down, to reach a stop bank above the level of the river. The river bank itself is lush with long grass. It would be easy to get lost in it. A walkway runs the length of the stop bank for as far as David can see. He wonders where the path finishes. At the sea, perhaps? Shards of sun reflect off the water. The tallest weeping willow stands ready for him. He settles against its rough trunk, sheltered from the increasing heat by its waving, drooping traceries of green. Agnes's directions about how to reach the river were spot on, and David is pleased to have remembered them all. How would Agnes have known the way unless she'd been telling him the truth? 
Of course, she might have been familiar with this area before taking the house over from Stephen. If that's what she did. It's all so confusing. The river is wide at this point. Its water's deeper than David imagined. He's heard that the river is tidal. That probably explains the depth. Right now, the current is fast-flowing. Seawards, he supposes. Water from a stormwater pipe somewhere nearby adds to the river's rush. It sounds like a waterfall. And then he sees what Ed meant. The river is carrying people today. David sits on the stop bank in pencil-thin rowing boats, crewed by pairs and fours, and even one team of eight, arrow past him, swift as birds in the blue air. He watches the boats and their crews, wide-eyed. He had no idea that all this activity existed so close to home. After the boats have swooped past, David's thoughts can't help but turn back to Agnes. Agnes twirling in the dusty hallway of the villa. Agnes in the kitchen standing beside her rocking chair, sitting in her rocking chair, the chair barely moving. Agnes claiming to have a reserve of stores, or store of reserves, but surrounded by empty cupboards and a stove that looks as if it might have belonged to some ancient civilization. She's good with words, that's true. Hmm, words can be slippery things. They can hide the truth as much as reveal it. Weasel words. He doesn't remember where he got that description from. Maybe it's a David Parkhouse original. What should he do about Agnes? What can he do? Does he have to tell Mum and Dad about her after all, or should he be happy to let Ed take over as fixer-upper? He seems a nice enough bloke. Efficient too, probably. But Agnes would call him a busybody for sure. Interfering where he's not welcome. Wanting to be in charge. Especially if she knew that he'd called the bees my bees. Didn't Agnes say that no one owns the lives of bees? Whoever Agnes really is, and for whatever reason she's staying in the abandoned house, she's not likely to be happy with Ed intruding into her life. She won't be over the moon at that David has told on her either. Does he even want to go back and tell Agnes what he's seen on the river, like she asked him to? Does he want to go back to the house and feel like he's trapped there, the way he did the other day, just before Amber texted him? He doesn't know. Agnes is probably right. He doesn't know much about anything at all. Chapter 20 David is writing an upbeat message to his parents and another to Amber when a bright orange double kayak carrying a man and a woman appears without warning from round a bend in the river. David touches the send arrow before letting himself be distracted by the sight of the kayak. His first thought is that he'd love to do that, one day be carried along by a fast-moving current in a fluorescent craft like theirs, and then he realises there are so many other things he wants to do as well. The things he's dreamed of during his times in hospital. The things he's thought of since. Everything there is to do in the world and more. Paddle a kayak, hit a sex, keep bees, freedom camp in a haunted house. 
as he watches and daydreams, the kayakers manoeuvre right up to where David is sitting. He hadn't noticed it before, but there's a narrow landing stage by the river's edge. The kayak comes alongside. Hi, says the man, brushing his hair out of his eyes. Sorry, we left our masks in the car. Didn't expect to see anyone on the riverbank here. We'll keep our distance. And we won't be long, the woman says. David shakes his head. How could he object, even if he wanted to? And he doesn't. The woman holds on to the landing, letting the man get out of the kayak. Then it's his turn to keep the boat stable while she clambers out. They're both tall and extremely wiry. They look as if they spend a lot of time outdoors. Need a hand? David asks them, wondering if making such an offer will seem silly. He's hardly up to their level of fitness. That'd be awesome. Take the grab handle, the man says, pointing to it. David reluctantly refits his mask before leaning down to take hold of a loop of rope. He steadies the kayak as the pair push the other end further up onto the bank. It feels good to be able to do that. Awesome. Thanks, mate. That's made life a whole lot easier, the man says. The bank's pretty steep at this point. Don't really know why they put the landing stage where they did. The two of them then step back far enough for David to feel it safe to remove his mask completely. It's a huge relief to have it off. No worries, he says. This one's James, by the way, the woman says. And this one's Rosalind, but she prefers Ros. Just don't call me Jim. I hate it. I'm David. Nice to meet you, David, Rod says. Live locally, do you? On the edge of the red zone. Not very far. What about you guys? Nah, we're miles away these days, says James. We just can't keep away, Ross says. It is pretty awesome around here, David agrees. But that's not the only reason we keep coming back, says Ross. We both used to live here once upon a time. This is where the two of us first met. It's all a bit different now. A lot different, actually. My family used to live across the road, opposite the river, and James was round the corner. Hard to tell. What's what now? She links arms with James, who plants a kiss right on her lips. David's certainly not sure where to look. He's unexpectedly reminded of Amber and Brendan meeting at the mall, choosing a burger for him, of Amber telling him to mind his own business. James sometimes gets terribly sentimental, Roz says to him. Don't embarrass the poor boy. It's okay, David says. Mind you, he's not the only sentimental one, Roz says. The thing that always tears me up is knowing that the house I grew up in is gone forever. If I close my eyes, I can see myself as a little kid, playing with my dog in the back garden. Couldn't you have stayed, David asks, like some people did. Nah, the house was munted, says Roz, moving swiftly from sentimental to pragmatic. It had to go. We had to go. Good thing poor old Dula was long gone by the time we left. He'd have so missed all his favourite haunts. Dulo? Did he write? Did Ros actually just say what he thinks she did? That's a wooden grave marker that he so carelessly kicked away was hers. Her marker with her words written on it. Remembering her dog? Dulo? 
My old dog, says Ros. He's still buried in what used to be our back garden, but I'd never be able to find the exact spot now. I wrote a little marker for him, a wee cross. I know it was still there when we moved, after a house came down, but it's not there any more. I have a wander from time to time, in case it shows up, but it never has. That's hardly surprising, says James, after all this time. They mow the grass these days, so the mower probably churned it up, or somebody threw it into the river. Who knows? It could have ended up miles from here. They'd only have kept it to have had a good laugh at my terrible spelling, Ros says to David. I was just a little kid then. I'm a much better speller now. Have to be, since I'm a teacher. James shrugs. Come on, Ros, heave ho. Let's get this baby into its cradle. Need my help? says David. We're all good from here, says James. But thanks again. Much appreciated. Might see you again sometime, eh? Yeah, says David, as James and Ros carry the kayak to the parked SUV. Maybe. And I hope you find Dula's marker one day, he calls to Ros. It might still be around somewhere. Hope so too, she calls back. But I very much doubt it. I'll, I'll look out for it. Ross gives him a thumbs up. David watches him fix a kayak to the cradle on the roof. That done, they climb into the vehicle. Ross drives. She waves as she swings the car around. A cloud covers the sun just briefly, and suddenly the day feels different, emptier. David shall get back to the villa and tell Agnes what he's seen. But somehow, he'd rather not return there. Not today. He didn't promise to, after all. Maybe he'll go tomorrow. By then, Ed may have been round and left him, with nothing left to fix up. Agnes might already be gone. Rehoused. That would suit him best, David decides. Well, the mystery is sort of unravelling, isn't it? But where does Agnes fit in? Is she real? We should find out next time as we start chapter 21. Goodbye, children. Happy reading. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.